When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, uh, Ron Swigenberg. I storm Japan at Penn State. Today, I will be talking to Naoko Ake about her book, American Survivors, Trans-Pacific Memories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which was published by Cambridge University Press uh, in 2021, just uh, now in May. Uh, Naoko Ake's American Survivors uh, is, as the title name implies, a history of American survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The fact that there are indeed American survivors of the American nuclear attack on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is a surprise to most of my students, and even arguably to most educated members of the wider public. And even in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I can tell you that the existence of American survivors is not well known. American survivors, however, number in the thousands, and but this number, like that of survivors in general, is dwindling fast. However, they have a unique and important history. Uh, now, Kowake have written this book almost at the last possible moment to capture it. Now, counterintuitively, American Survivors argues that there is the very marginality that makes American Survivors important. As she writes, if indeed it is not the center that determines the periphery, but the periphery that determines the center, your survivors' history is a periphery that threatens to disassemble, establish meanings of the bomb that have not been taken notice of. Based on oral testimonies, accessing documentation, American survivors trace the history of American survivors from the interwar years through the bombing of Hiroshima to the present. Naoko, um, can I call Naoko? Sure, of course. Okay. Yeah, please call me, Ryan. So um, as before we begin, I guess our first question is, uh, what got you to this project? You're a historian of Asian America originally, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, so uh, I will uh, start my comment by thanking you for having me uh, uh, for this wonderful opportunity. Um, so um, get to, to get to your question, I like to um, start with uh, the fact that I was born and raised in Japan and currently lives and works in, in, in the United States. So um, transnational or cross-national project like this kind of came naturally to me. I think in some ways I was looking for a project that speaks to um, me as uh, somebody who uh, belongs to two different cultures and societies and also feels um, 
sense of belonging to um, both of those uh, you know, sets of habits and uh, mindsets, if you will, um, but also somebody who feels the difficulty or challenges, to say the least, of uh, being split into uh, multiple directions as one crosses national and cultural borders. Um, so uh, when I was sort of uh, wrapping up my first project, um, which is the history of psychiatry and psychoanalysis uh, with a focus on sexual diversity, which is a very different project from uh, this current project that we are talking about now. Um, the, the issues of survivors and the survivor food and the history around them almost came naturally to me. Um, this is something that deeply relates to both uh, of those two countries that I'm experienced in. Um, so this is something that's deeply personal in that sense, um, but also intellectually speaking, it was quite liberating in that um, when I was in graduate school at uh, Indian University in Bloomington, um, many of my advisors told me to do some research project that involves US-Japan relations. And I was quite annoyed by it, to be frank with you, because it's kind of essentialism. <laughs> Just because of who I am, I should be thinking about something that looks or sounds like me, um, which kind of wasn't a great way to sort of hear anybody's advice. Although I will take a note of how it could have been very advantageous if I listened to them back then. Uh, but kind of in uh, resistance to those advices that are coming my way, again, when I was in graduate school, I, I decided to work on a dissertation project that was very, very American. <laughs> uh, there are some international dimensions to that project, but it's very much situated within the national borders of the US. So for me to be sort of able to free myself from any, you know, uh, set of expectations or um, sort of my response to those expectations, uh, free from that and thinking about what I really am interested in doing as a historian was quite a new um, experience for me. So I really deeply engage with this project in that sense as well. To be more specific, however, now I am going to talk a little bit beyond uh, my personal professional trajectories that uh, brought me to this project. This started with a footnote of an article written by historian Art Hansen, who wrote an article, many articles uh, anyway, but one of the articles was about Japanese American concentration camps. Uh, he actually conducted uh, a rich body of scholarship and published many articles and books in that area as well. And the footnote says this, again, this is an article about Japanese American uh, incarceration uh, during uh, World War II. Uh, in a footnote to this article said that some of the family members of those uh, Japanese American incarcerates were affected by the bomb in Hiroshima. And he said, I think, um, about six of them are currently identified. And my initial response was, it can't be that small. There must be more. So I started to look into it and I started to visit uh, some uh, survivors uh, on the West Coast. And it turned out there are thousands of them and most possibly more. 
Um, so uh, this kind of uh, shows how sometimes we historians think that, oh, you know, there are scholarly standard or kind of subject that tend to draw a lot of attention from the scholars in your field. And we are trained to sort of recognize it, but also be able to overcome it so that we can identify things that are left behind or hidden beneath of the mainstream narrative or mainstream interest. Um, but this is something I, I, um, I really took it to my heart in that I didn't even know this history. And I had to rely on an article that's not about the bomb, but about uh, the concentration camps, uh, even though this, both of them are now, I am aware, important part of the Japanese American history and Asian American history more broadly. Um, so um, that's essentially the, the key information that brought me to the project. It, it really opened up what looked like a small door initially, but turned out to be a huge project that was waiting uh, behind the door. Thank you. Uh, and going back to what you started about like doing your first book on something completely different, my, my career actually was completely different. I did the advertation thing first, like using mm -hmm. my own position as uh, someone who's from Jewish background and wrote a Hiroshima and the Holocaust, and then did the, the other project on something particularly in my own field. So I really uh, admire your courage of going the other way. <laughs> now, um, I want to go back to uh, the quote I just started with, because it's quoted really, really fascinated me. And I think it's, it's a very important quote on for people who works between, uh, between uh, I don't want to say nation, between communities, between regions, uh, between borders and which talks about periphery and marginality. And I just, I guess I should uh, read it again. It's like it says that the center does not determine the periphery, but periphery determines the center. Uh, and that US survivors history is periphery that presently disassemble established meanings of the bomb that have not uh, been taken notice of. Can you expand a little bit about this quote and what do you mean by that? There's one thing that uh, I was kind of struck by by the book, the history that even, even myself that I wrote a book about Hiroshima, I was not really aware of the fact that it was such an immigrant society and so much movement. So maybe in this context, you can expand a little bit about this point. Sure. Um, thank you for the question. Um, I think um, some of the things I mentioned uh, in response to your first question is applicable here in that um, I think it's true that bomb is not as central to Asian American history as the camp. Um, so um, I, I think that in a very, uh, um, very immediate sense of the word, um, the center was really, when it comes to Japanese American history, really the, the concentration camps during World War II. And even though if you look at individuals and families and communities, history of the bomb should be as central at least, uh, if not more, as the camps, uh, it's not the case in terms of what scholars have been doing. So I really wanted to, uh, um, you know, change that situation by thinking about what has been situated in the periphery when it is not uh, supposed to be there, or it is not really the situation when, if you look at and listen to individual family and community histories uh, that surrounds U.S. survivors as much as they do, um, you know, the history of the camps. Um, but I, I like to say how this is something that's related to the oral history method that I developed 
as a process of conducting research for this book. Um, this book is based on non-governmental documents. This is a book that's um, generated by oral histories with ordinary people who really have not occupied any positions of power. So uh, to uh, weave together a history and historical understanding uh, from those kinds of narratives almost necessitate us to think about the power dynamism that I was trying to convey by talking about the center and periphery. And I don't, I'm not saying that as a way to highlight those centers and peripheries as if they are dualistic extremes of some sort. I don't necessarily think that way. I think uh, borders between the center and peripheries can and are constantly shifting. And also it's not a straight line. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's kind of like a filter that may or may not be there at any given moment. But I think it's, it's uh, in politics of memory and also politics of care for survivors, it's very important to think about how this uh, presumed um, border between the center and peripheries are uh, defined uh, for what reasons. Uh, and so my effort was to sort of think about uh, the historical factors and dynamism that in some ways defines the borderline between the center and the, the margins of the surrounds the center. Um, so I guess going back to the oral history interviews with ordinary people, um, their words were there. Um, I think, you know, it's important for us to note that um, again, among themselves or within their families and communities, their experiences as immigrants, as you mentioned earlier, this has much to do with the history of immigrants or immigration uh, between Asia and the US mainland, but also Pacific Island, particularly Hawaii. Um, they have been uh, talking about their cross-national experiences since they are young children. Uh, they were not shy about uh, you know, expressing their American characteristics or cultural traits or belong senses of belongings, even when they were transplanted in wartime Japan. Um, so it's not as though the history weren't there and experiences weren't there. And yet we really didn't have a chance to hear anything about those voices and experiences. And that's because the politics that surrounds the history of the bomb that surrounds the immigration history did not take any interest in knowing more about their experience and hearing their voices. Um, so I, I guess uh, that's the reason why I actually had to retrieve those voices by creating new historical sources, which are oral histories, right? I, they don't have a luxury of going into national archives and then you know, type in a keyword, American survivors in a finding aid. There's nothing to be found there. So uh, you start to sort of, uh, you know, ask people questions so that you can come up with better keywords. And then you try out, you, you make a, I made a list of keywords, uh, like names of individuals or organizations that are derived from the oral history interviews with survivors and their family members and their supporters on both sides of the Pacific. And yet those keywords still don't, you know, return a lot of results, right? So you have to conclude that there is no established archive that tells us the history of American survivors. So what do you do? Well, you have to sort of keep on collecting memories through oral history interviews. And that's the kind of a history that, that I was able to create. 
uh, I don't claim to say, uh, I don't claim that this particular way of researching and writing history is either superior to any other ways of doing history. But I don't argue that it's inferior or less than other types of history. Let's say histories that are based on established national archives or uh, the primary sources that are generated by the, the people in the position of power, governmental agencies or governmental officials or scientists and so on, or even activists who are uh, organizers and leaders of major anti-nuclear organizations. I think there are uh, valuable histories that are and have been generated out of those primary sources and their critiques. But I do think that oral histories were not there and I was able to create a collection of oral histories vis-a-vis um, Japanese American and Korean American survivors. And hopefully that would um, challenge the existing borderline between the center and the periphery that, um, that I think was not uh, particularly accommodating to the voices um, that I was able to retrieve. Yeah, try to count how many oral interviews you have and it's in the dozens, right? Yeah, I think I, I did in total 86 interviews. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, there are uh, a couple of other uh, sets of interviews that are conducted by other, um, they were not scholars, but they were activists or artists. Uh, Shinpei Takeda is uh, somebody I worked closely uh, for earlier project and he interviewed not only North American survivors but also South American survivors, which is really wonderful. So there are, and he's a documentary filmmaker and artist. So there are uh, interests that are taken uh, uh, in this particular group of survivors before me. So um, I, I think that's great. I was able to build on those existing sets of interviews that totaled uh, about, let's see, uh, about 70. So uh, 70 plus my own interviews, 80 plus um, uh, are the ones that I was able to use for, for my book. Yeah, there's the amount of hours and time it takes to transcribe and, and a lot of them are probably very old, right? And um, what did you, did you speak with them in English and Japanese? I mean, you, you're a, a native speaker, right? I mean, I'm very interested in, in the oral history itself. That is something also I, I tackle a lot. Uh, I mean, of course, my positionality is different than yours. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about your own position and maybe the language. But you do write about it in, in the introduction, right? Yes, I, I do. I, um, um, I'm, I'm born and raised in Japan, so Japanese is my native language. Um, uh, my interviews were conducted mostly uh, in mix of Japanese and English. Um, uh, many people wanted to speak in English, but when it comes the time for them to talk about wartime experiences in Japan, they wanted to use Japanese words to describe and recapture the moment that mattered to them. So that was very interesting to me. Um, uh, other people simply wanted to use Japanese all the way through the interview, but then it was interesting because when the time comes for them to interact with their family members, some of them are sort of, you know, waiting in a different room for the interview to be over. And, you know, they sometimes need to, you know, take care of their own, uh, you know, family matters, even, you know, in the midst of interviews that just happens because, again, this is me stepping into somebody else's private homes in many cases and trying to, you know, um, 
allow me to have ask for their time and uh, generosity, really. So, you know, their ordinary time um, and the daily uh, matters uh, pop into the interview. And then people who are speaking in Japanese would switch over to English in those sort of moments. So I, I think it was genuinely, <clears throat> um, you know, the sort of going back and forth uh, between two uh, modes of speaking and modes of remembering and uh, communicating uh, in most, if not all of the interviews. And I think that's that's what um, uh, made me realize of the fuzzy in-between space that I occupy as a, a person who uh, belong to uh, two uh, different cultures and societies. Um, so I speak with uh, accented English uh, because English is not my uh, native language. Um, but I think that uh, experience for, from survivors' perspective, the experience for them to be talking with somebody who speaks like me probably reminded them of maybe their extended family members, uh, or maybe uh, in some cases, that's the way they themselves spoke as well. Um, you know, their families, uh, members of immigrants, maybe their grandparents or parent generation spoke in that way, in the way that I do. Uh, and, and so that's something that sort of uh, clicked with them, that signaled that um, not just them, but also me as co-constructor of the memory telling uh, or somebody who belongs to uh, uh, more than one culture um, in between space was uh, something that uh, sharpened over time as I spoke to more people. Yeah, I can see while I'm reading the book, I can see the connection between the, the theoretical framework you use and methodology and the stories as well, like in between space, layered belongings, uh, cross national rather than transnational. It's actually something that uh, I really um, wanted to pick up a little bit more because you, you make a point of not using transnational. So before we jump into the chapters, I just really want to maybe touch this point as well of like, why not transnational? Right? It's yeah. Um, I, I think that's, uh, you're absolutely right to say that that's the point that I wanted to emphasize um, in that, I mean, transnational is something that we frequently use and uh, it has become sort of scholastic lingo almost uh, to talk about how transnational we should be and we are in our scholarly inquiries. Um, I didn't really think that that explained the the sort of sense of belonging, uh, multi-layered senses of belonging that I thought that I was hearing from my uh, oral history interviewees. And uh, maybe this is just my reading, but uh, people, scholars who use the word transnational seems to sort of assume the ease of moving from one location to another. Uh, it seems to imply some amount of power and privilege to my reading. So Transnational America, for instance, uh, the book that uh, was kind of impressive to me in sort of defining the, the use of transnationalism or transnationality um, in, in a major way um, was really talking about circulation of um, uh, capitals, circulation of knowledge, circulation of goods. And uh, you are able to uh, talk about how you can cross national boundaries without um, uh, pain, conflicts, 
uh, rather with fluidity and freedom. And that seems to be off for me. Again, thinking about how this is a book built on ordinary people's uh, voices of their experiences. Um, so when I say cross-national instead of transnational, I felt that was closer to what they were trying to communicate to me in that uh, cross-nationalism sometimes causes you pain. Uh, it, it feels like um, border is falling on you or crossing you instead of you crossing borders. Uh, it feels like I am just living my life uh, as the best I can, but somehow the border falls on upon, upon me and I can't do what I thought that I enjoy doing anymore. Uh, be it citizenship, be it the food that you are able to or not able to eat, be it the community event that you are and aren't able to go to celebrate, such as Thanksgiving or, you know, um, uh, those kinds of type of things that are very much tied up with one society or another. So if you move or cross from one place to another, you may not be able to have an access to those things anymore. Um, so I think that that always causes people conflicts um, and, and also pleasure and uh, uh, new sets of hopes and expectations and aspirations even um, that seems to indicate that it's a lot of emotional engagement going on when a person crosses a border or a border crosses those people that I talk to uh, that seems to be better captured by cross-national rather than transnational. Transnational sounds transcendental, right? It, it sounds like you are able to ignore those borders that might infringe on you, which is not the yes. case with cross-national. Yes, um, thank you. I never thought about it like this, but it, it, is, it is true that transnational is usually used in a more, to imply a much more smoother circulation of ideas and people and commodities. Well, for those people, it was the, crossing of the Pacific was not smooth at all. And I want to jump to the chapter and about those crossing. I and mean, there's, uh, there's two chapters, particular one and three, when you talk a lot about the crossing in between Japan and the United States. And I want to talk about the first chapter, talk more about the interwarriors and the fact that Hiroshima and Nagasaki are, as we mentioned before, cities of immigrants. Um, that's something that I was, I was aware of. Uh, I think you cannot not be aware of uh, the fact that there are a lot of Korean um, Korean Hibakusha, Korean survivors of the bomb, uh, that Hiroshima was, there was this idea that Hiroshima wouldn't be bombed because it was supposed to be an American, a city full of Americans, as all those things, but I never really took much notice of it. Um, to what extent was Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were port cities, right? To what extent were there his, uh, cities of immigrants? And is there some kind of a difference between Hiroshima and Nagasaki? We tend to conflate two, but yeah. we shouldn't, right? Yeah, so I think Hiroshima is more of a, a prototype that I wanted to propose in my book. Uh, I think it's important to note that Nagasaki has a, probably a longer history of interacting with Western influences uh, that goes back uh, well before um, you know, 19th century uh, that, that my book, uh, which is the earliest uh, era that I, I talk about in my book. Whereas in terms of Hiroshima cities of immigrant, uh, as a city of immigrant and its history, uh, it generated more substantial number of immigrants who have very substantial connection between the US and Japan um, or Hawaii and Japan, depending on when they initially migrated to the uh, 
the east of east of Japan. So um, I, I would say that in terms of number, the size of people that I talk to, especially if you look at North American survivors, as I did in my book, Hiroshima is is much more uh, of a city of immigrants than Nagasaki. I do take note of how uh, this has much to do with probably the, the fact that my book is really focusing on North America and North America only. If you look at South American nations, uh, then you see many more uh, survivors who are from Nagasaki. So uh, if you sort of, you know, uh, expand your definition of Americas, uh, as you probably should, and I, I hope that somebody else do that, um, uh, I think the Nagasaki would uh, definitely emerge as a city of immigrant, but probably differently so uh, than the way that Hiroshima is. Um, so uh, as you know, Ran, I uh, talk a lot about memories of food in chapter one. Many, um, you know, they have American-born American kids, right? So they miss pancakes with butter and hamburgers or turkeys on Thanksgiving because those things are no longer there. Uh, so they think, where, where are they? Where are my kids' chocolate? Um, uh, that was kind of a huge uh, popular item among uh, Hawaiian kids, especially. Yeah. And, you know, parents uh, did the best that they could possibly do so that they can continue their habit. American habit, if you will, of drinking coffee. They sort of smuggle them in, right? Um, and then they ask their friends who were still back in the US to, to carry some coffee beans with them. Uh, there is even uh, the district uh, in Hiroshima uh, called Niho, Nihocho, uh, mm. that was nicknamed as coffee flavored town uh, because there are lots of returnees from the US uh, who are living in that district. Um, and the same thing applies to all kinds of things like household items, like towels that, that you use after washing your face, right? Some of the, the American kids in Hiroshima were using this, you know, fantastically supple American style towels to wipe their faces. Whereas everybody else in Japan in the city was using this cold thing that's called tenugui, which doesn't have any suppleness to it. It's not thick. It's quite thin and it absorbs water so quickly that it doesn't really absorb water at all. <laughs> um, so that means that, I mean, comparatively speaking to American style towels. So uh, they tell those stories that uh, allow us to see the grounded day-to-day -day experiences as immigrants. And uh, I know that I could have made a lot of political points um, by saying that those are American citizens how come the American government decided to attack the cities and destroy them anyway, despite the fact that their own citizens were uh, in numbers living in those places? Uh, I do feel very cautious about making those points per se, uh, very cautious about making those points per se, because I think that is very much uh, dependent on the narrow definition of citizenship and national belonging. It's very prevalent in, in the sort of uh, the history of Japanese American concentration camps. Uh, uh, you know, the so Japanese Americans, um, uh, some of them anyway, were very adamant about arguing their citizenship rights and then based on that, how they should not be incarcerated and how um, even after the, uh, that they were released from the camps after the war, they should be treated as American citizens and therefore be compensated, right? So there is this sort of focus on 
the kind of a set of rights that one should be able to claim because that they are American citizens. I think it's important to challenge that. Uh, I think it's important that American survivors themselves, of course, wanted to claim their belonging to the US, but they also always wanted to include not only US born US citizens, but also Japan born US citizens who became US citizens after the war. They always wanted to cross national borders, be cross national in that way, because they knew the arbitrary nature of citizenship. So they wanted to build yeah. activism based on the broader notion of citizenship. And they really wanted to pay attention to that, respect that by not using their American citizenship per se as a point, the central point of my argument. And so that's the reason why I wanted to focus on culture. I wanted to show uh, to my readers what people did every day. And that's what matters as much as anything else. It matters which country is, uh, you know, making what decision uh, and what method of uh, wars and tools of war that they are making a decision to use and not to use. Those are, of course, extremely important. Equally important is how people are living in their lives through the process and how they have their own definition of their own belonging, their lives as immigrants uh, or survivors, for that matter. Um, I really wanted to generate my analysis from there not from the other side of the story. Um, so yeah. that's the reason why uh, I wanted to talk about all of those cultural things that people do or said in thinking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki as cities of immigrants. And actually also citizenship as a marker of, of privilege is also a problem in later chapters. And also um, Azuma Ichiro also speaks a lot in uh, his work on uh, uh, Japanese American GIs in Japan after the war, how they use their privilege, and there's a lot of problems with 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 using citizenship as a marker of difference. Uh, I want to go back to the speaking of different. I want to go back to the food a little bit because when I teach memory study, well, that's what I do most of the time. I use a lot. I really like because I really use the Cruz Madeline as the example of how <laughs> memory works. And I wanted to ask about if it's something that they spoke about. Is it something that came out of your interviews? Did they mention food? Particularly because it, you know, food and memory, clothing. This is stuff that people remember. They don't remember grand narratives, right? I mean, at least that's from my experience. Yes and no. So uh, I have to say, uh, I had to search for it. And after hearing initial few stories that are really striking to me, that are about food and how and what they remember about food that they ate during this time period, I intentionally started to ask them questions about food so that I can sort of start to see the hidden history of food, so to speak. And the reason why I say it's a hidden history of food is not because it's not there, but because in many times, many survivors that I talked to, they wanted to start right with the very stereotypical stories of, you know, this is how my day started on August 6th or August 9th. And, uh, you know, I was waking up and then, then my mom did uh, that. My siblings are at school. And then, then there is a huge flash and, and, and there was an explosion. And, and then there is a, a tremendous devastation that they experienced. I already asked them. I made a point of making it clear at the start of every interview uh, that I want to hear their childhood stories that were before the bomb. I also wanted to hear their stories when they were still 
in, in the US uh, where many of them were born. But despite my emphasis, many people wanted to jump right into the sort of stories about the bomb that uh, they thought that I should be familiar with. Broadly speaking, this is a kind of uh, stories of the bomb that circulate and contributes to memory industry. Um, you know, uh, I was recently reading uh, tons of newspaper articles that my mom sent to me throughout my years of doing a research for my book. I mean, my mom uh, lives in Japan and she lives relatively close to Hiroshima, actually. She lives in Yamaguchi. And then she sent me this thick piles of Japanese newspapers featuring the bomb every year. And it's clearly a memory industry. And I just say it in flat out as a sort of descriptor rather than anything that, you know, carries any judgments. Uh, I, I just think that it's, that's what happens, that has happened in Japan, but not in the U.S., right? So knowing, any, knowing that, more or less, uh, many American survivors really wanted to certify me because they felt that that's what Naoko Wake must want to hear. So let's try to give her something that I heard from other people being featured. And apparently that's what people that's in society is mm. interested in, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I noticed too, when, when you talk to people, survivors, they have the story that it's not quite their own sometimes. There's a genre. Alicia Onama writes beautifully about this, right? It's how the, the gener generification, mm -hmm. I think is the right word, like how it has become a genre and story always starts in August 6, always ends with uh, talking about peace. There's a, and this is how memory works through the years. And we build a story and we're retelling, retelling, and it's based also on expectation of people. And you see, particularly with people who speak English uh, in Hiroshima, when it's foreigners, it's, uh, and I like how food breaks it down because food, you have this really um, positive, nostalgic uh, meaning to it, right? In the pre-war, but then it gets much darker, not just food, but clothing. There's a story about under, undergarments that you tell, which was quite shocking. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about this, about the, the way that objects and food play in the memory of the bomb. Right, yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, it, it could be very, food can be very intimate uh, and, you know, it's very immediate and materialistic and urgent, but it's also um, intimate and personal. It could open up memories about the people that they shared the food with or families that fed them. Um, but I, I think that's the reason why it could also be the, the opening for a really dark, uh, um, you know, the, the environment that they witnessed after the, the bombing. So I, I can uh, remember one story, rather striking story of, um, you know, one survivor, um, you know, being able to find uh, her sister's corpses, not because of any physical features, because they were uh, maimed, uh, they were destroyed uh, to the degree it's not recognizable anymore, but uh, because of the underwear uh, that she was wearing, because, um, you know, she was wearing a, a underwear that's made in the U.S. that had a, a very silky touch to it and had an embroidery on it. And then that was something that you just didn't see in, in Japan of the time. Um, they, they wore different types of underwear, right? So that made the, the body of her sisters uh, stand out when otherwise it wouldn't have been possible to identify um, her, her um, identity at all. 
So that was, that became a dark and yet very cherished memory for this family because, of course, it's very important for you to be able to find a body of, or remain of your loved ones. And that's, that's very true to survivors as well. So that was, among other things, it was really the, the priority that, that was what was driving many survivors' yeah. actions, you know, after, after the bombing. Um, so the yeah. clothes stood out in, in that dark way as well. Yeah, well, I want to I wanna, uh, continue to the, uh, to the American parts of it where the bulk of the book, but before there's really something that I want to, and we talked about a lot in the past, you know, about caring, about, about care after the bomb and gender and the, the role of women. And it's like you have a very long and important conversation. It's for me one, uh, at least for me personally, one of the most uh, striking uh, portion of the book when we talk about uh, medical and psychological care supplied by women as caregivers. And also speaking of the darkness of uh, darkness and materiality, the way the uses of human ash and the ingenuity of those women, and specifically in treating burns. Maybe you want to expand a little bit on this before we move into, we cross over back to, US. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I, I, I am uh, appreciative how you sort of focus on the care part of it, which is uh, very gendered uh, activities um, then and now as well, I believe. And that really started, stood out for me as a sort of a thread of the narratives that many survivors told me. So survivors um, used, American survivors included, but also applicable to Japanese survivors or Korean survivors as well. They used used leaf teas and mashed potatoes, fermented cucumbers, pumpkins, all sorts of cooking oils, um, so on and so forth. In addition, crush, in addition to crushed human bones to cover their wounds. And if you just sort of think about basic things that you must do, uh, it, it doesn't make sense that many survivors resorted to the use of those materials that are the only materials that are available, right, uh, at that point. Um, so you, you need to cover the wounds, right, to prevent the, the wounds being exposed to the air. And also you need to disinfect and make sure the further infection doesn't occur. So something that is wet and cling to the surface and something that would stay there, something that creates a sort of substance that stays there uh, on the, the, uh, the location of injury was very important. So people tried out many different things just to do the basic things that they felt that they needed to do to help themselves and others survive. And uh, one of the, the, the discoveries I, I think I made in my work is that many of the people who offer those folk medicines, uh, um, medications, so to speak, um, they were women, right? And then women are the house, many households caretakers, even before the war, even before the bomb, that uh, actually help survivors to perceive the continuity that they were able to hold on to, despite the fact that there was such a huge break generated by the bomb. Um, there are a lot of transformation of drastic nature, obviously, that took place as a result of the bomb uh, that made it all the more necessary for survivors to find a continuity or any continuity whatsoever that reminded them that they are still here, their uh, families and then their communities have not completely vanished. Um, it was a, a basic necessity. 
So uh, for women to be able to continue to, to generate, to offer uh, the care, the kind of um, home remedies, right, that they had been uh, offering to their children, their, uh, as their family members, um, just as they used to before the war and continue to do that after the bomb was, is, is very important. And that's something that uh, came back to many survivors uh, remembering of the bomb when they started to come together um, in, in the 1960s and 1970s as self-support organizations of American survivors, um, women's uh, care uh, that they were able to benefit from on the ground zero became one of the, the nods, um, sort of um, the clusters of memories, the points of memories that uh, made them realize that yes, they have a unique experiences to share and that, that should be the reasons why their experiences shouldn't stay in the margins of history and the government should recognize their suffering. Um, so I think for various reasons, um, carers is very important and that's, I think that's um, another way to think about the politics of memory, uh, but grounded again in ordinary people's experiences in that um, we know so much about ABCC, right? <laughs> Atomic Bomb Casualty uh, Commission and also, um, you know, famous doctors who are heroic. Um, uh, Nagai Hakase, says, and that's the yeah. name that comes to my mind. Or, you know, all those sort of physicians that are uh, devoted to, um, you know, repairing the looks of uh, the Japanese women who came to the, the US in 1955 as- Genbakoto, the, the Eba Maidens, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Genbakoto, the Hiroshima. Yeah, because, well, you know, those are the people who live uh, resources, right? I mean, in my work, in your work, when you want to go and study about uh, the history of survivors, you don't go to the survivors. Well, you do, but uh, you do go to survivors, but there's no his the history of care is mostly the history of uh, medical care and mm -hmm. it's donated by men and institutions. And at least in my work, and I guess, it, and I say that yours also, like men did not provide, I mean, they did to an extent, but... It didn't provide the needs of the community, and women stepped in to do it. Um, in my work as well, as you know, I work my work on trauma and psychological care. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned ABCC, and like uh, before, I already wanted to to cross back to America, but maybe we'll stay a little bit more in the US and talk about what happened before immigration or and after after the war, and the relationship of suddenly their American not necessarily citizens, right? But they're American in occupied Japan. What happens then? What happens to their position vis-a-vis -vis Japanese, vis-a-vis -vis the occupation? Maybe we can talk a little bit more before we jump in the US, yeah. US part of it. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I think it's a, a important era for us to, to be uh, more aware of. This is an era even, you know, with a focused research, such as something that um, H.O. Azuma has done. It's, it's really... Um, still an area, an era that could use uh, much more studies. Um, so the, um, like right around the time of the occupation, um, right? So uh, there are, it was a, it was really cross-national or transnational societies when it comes to Japanese societies of the time. There are Americans, there are Japanese Americans, there are Koreans and there are Korean Japanese. Uh, and, you know, soon to be, you know, change, witness the, the, the status of, 
their, their status of citizenship drastically changed. And uh, there are Taiwanese, there are Chinese people and uh, so on and so forth. Um, so I, I think that's uh, where the, uh, the local history becomes important. I, I think if you look at Tokyo or Osaka, for instance, you get the different kind of picture from, uh, uh, from what I was able to find by looking at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so ABCC is one big factor in there uh, because those are the institutions established by the US, uh, but in the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, those are the institutions. There are two of uh, the ABCCs, uh, one for each city, but um, their aim was to study the effect of radiations on humans. Yeah, maybe I'll just jump in one second. ABCC, the American, uh, the Atomic Bomb uh, Casualty Commission, that's, that's what it stands for. I mean, we work on this, so it's usual. That, that's, uh, as, as Naoko just said, it's, it's the research um, infrastructure was put in, in both cities to study the bomb. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, yes, thank you. Um, so I, I think that um, that presence of ABCC was uh, uh, was very uh, influential in shaping the roles that American survivors played uh, in the post-war and occupation era Japanese society um, and occupation forces as well. Um, so uh, one way to talk about how um, Japanese American survivors played their roles in this era was how both ABCC uh, or and occupation forces were the, the potential employers of Japanese Americans who were considered to be, and some of them were actually fluent in both in English and Japanese. So the, the demand for translator at this time period was very uh, high because again, of the nature of the, the transnational commingling of people, coexistence of people that we see particularly in this era. Um, so I think that the, the survivors uh, felt that uh, there are employment opportunities, even when they were not looking, they, they, they were actually recruited, some of them anyway, by being able to speak in, in English and in Japanese. So uh, occupation forces, I think uh, in many ways, uh, um, gave survivors to be the, the cultural mediators um, in that not only in terms of language, but you know, this is an era when uh, street level violence and disturbances uh, were rampant. Um, so um, there are many um, you know, instances where there was a stealing of food because it's a, a dire status uh, era of food shortage uh, in Japan during this time. So, uh, and, and there are American occupational force uh, personnel, you know, uh, stationed in those cities, in addition to other major cities, or ma more major cities like uh, Tokyo, for instance. So um, there are uh, occupiers uh, whose presence that many Japanese people now being in the place of occupiers did not appreciate. So there are lots of conflict that arose out of those interactions. Um, I think many Americans, uh, Japanese American survivors who are capable and uh, are willing to play that mediating role work as a translator, but also sometimes they assisted the local police department to sort of uh, come up with a better way of managing American soldiers or Western occupying forces so that uh, there will be a clear division of labor between the um, 
Japanese police department and occupation force in terms of in what cases the Japanese police department would have ability to intervene and in what other cases that they don't. Uh, things like that, that needed to be really on the shifting, that was on the shifting ground and needed to be negotiated. I think that's yeah. where Japanese American survivors played a role. Yeah, and Hiroshima had a huge problem with crime uh, at the time also. So mm-hmm. they would have been important. I and mean, it's something else. Uh, it's not quite related. I mean, that's, um, this is something that gave American, Japanese American survivors privilege, but the case you talk a little about about Korean survivors also which were in a very, very different position, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, they shifted towards being a, an ethnic minority, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, in terms of Korean-Americans, I mean, they, they sort of, um, I, I think, interestingly, um, had a lot of um, opportunities to rethink their um, status, both as a newly liberated uh, nationals or citizens of uh, Korea, but also somebody who is bombed as if they were Japanese enemies in the eyes of American government. And that sort of conflict and the rethinking, renegotiation of their sense of who they are became most highlighted when they interacted with the ABCC. So Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, again, which is a US institution for research, um, they felt uh, very much violated their personal uh, territories and privacy being um, uh, disrespected um, because ABCC didn't make a distinction between Japanese and Korean people at that point, right? So that means that they came after your child's body, right after your child passed away because of the injuries that they suffered uh, from the Right. So they had a, uh, they, I think, in some ways discovered a common ground with Japanese survivors. And I'm, I'm not saying that as a way to say, oh, so therefore they were less critical of Japanese colonialism. Right. I mean, I think we, we have to recognize those kinds of daily realities without, you know, um, refusing to think about other issues. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's, it, it's complex. And one thing that comes out a lot in, in your book is the idea of layered, layered meaning, layered belonging, that people can be off two places at the same time and doesn't have to be this or that because you're Korean, you have to think like that because you're Japanese, you think like that. It's like, and that's how life works, right? It always amazes me that people uh, in my classes and otherwise say, because people are of a certain background, it doesn't matter what their experiences are, right? They will be automatically put in this particular box. And, and yeah. I think you did a very good job in showing how this very, very much uh, almost circumstantial, right? It really, it changes from day to day even for those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, because it's very interesting time, I really want to move more towards chapters three and four, which talks more, so chapter one and two mostly take care, takes place uh, either between Japan and America or in Hiroshima and Nagasaki himself, but in chapter three and four, you talk a lot about migration in the United States, the first in the forties and fifties and the integration, the struggle to integrate into communities uh, of Japanese Americans, Asian Americans that are also struggling with uh, the internment camps. Uh, and in here, something that you talk a lot about is the issues of silence and healing. And that's also something that my work and the work of anybody who works on, on, on traumatic memories is something that you we need to think more about the issue of silence. Because we, as historians of memory, mostly focus on testimonies and people who stop, come forward as witnesses, right? 
about what they say because as historians, if there's no words, <laughs> there's no there's no uh, there's no shiryo, uh, there's no uh, there's no material to work with, right? And your book, however, talks as much about silence as there was is about is about words. And you write uh, about a space of silence. This uh, page one sixty six, a space of silence within Asian American community, or counter memory of the bound thrive. What, what does this mean? And, and how does silence play a role in, in memory here? Yeah. Specifically with integration. That, that... Yeah, so, I mean, this is an era when survivors are a newcomer, or yet again, in many cases, um, to American society. Um, um, then for some of the people who are Japanese born and came to the U.S. because of marriage or because of the, the, the educational job opportunities, um, that was the uh, experience of as new immigrants. So um, and that's uh, that coincided with uh, the era during which uh, Japanese Americans and Asian Americans are emerging out of World War II experience, uh, particularly for Japanese Americans, the memory of the camp mass incarceration of their family members uh, who stayed in the U.S. Uh, through the war was very fresh. Uh, so readjustment to U.S. society was considered to be the number one priority. And, you know, government was intentionally trying to sort of disperse and in many ways destroy the, the enclaves, ethnic enclaves that existed before the war, like little Tokyo, for instance, or Japan town. They wanted Japanese American to go to different places. Um, you know, even during the war time when the younger, uh, you know, the college age uh, students uh, were able to go to college and use that as a reason why they should be released from the camp. They were sent to Midwest, uh, um, you know, where I teach in Michigan. There are people who came to University of Michigan. There are people who went to Kalamazoo College. I mean, it's it's uh, sort of disbursement of uh, ethnic groups so that they would better fade into or adjust into the mainstream American society. So even to the degree that some or maybe many Japanese Americans are, you know, avoiding to speak to each other on the street when other people may be able to spot you. Um, so that was a very strong cultural and social demands that shaped the, the Asian American history of the time, around the time US survivors are coming or returning to, to the US. Um, so it was very difficult to break the silence, right? So why do you sort of make a wave by speaking about how you were bombed? I mean, where do you even start? And that is very important that that was not just a, a response vis-a-vis -vis to the so-called US mainstream society, but also their family members. They, are, they suffer the, the Japanese American concentration camps or they, in case of you know Korean Americans, it's a it's a very different kind of story. But uh, they they were they fought the war uh, toward independence, right? So how do you sort of navigate the new sense of alliance that were emerging between the U.S. and Korea? That was something that the people who were in the U.S. had to negotiate. So um, I think that the model minority myth, nascent model minority S was already emerging during this time period in that you just sort of fit in and don't make waves, work hard, be successful, uh, move, move upward by uh, perseverances and so forth. <clears throat> so uh, because of the silence, I think hiding uh, and the healing at the same time thrived. And then that's what I meant to say. 
And it sounds like, so this kind of social expectations of the Cold War era and thinking about hiding your survival food as much as possible sounds stifling and it is stifling. And yet I wanted to say that that's not lack thereof. It's not as simple as that. When they are hiding, they are also actively engaging the act of healing and that's very different from saying that they couldn't speak up and so they couldn't come together. So therefore they were hidden in history. I think they were healing and taking advantage of silence. Um, so there are very few words that survivors exchange with their family members that seems to work as a, a kind of a strong salient point in their memories uh, when they think about and talk about this time period uh, when I interviewed them. So uh, there is this particular woman, I think of somebody who talked about how her mother-in-law and herself talk about both the camp and the bomb and how um, they exchanged no more than maybe five or six words. But those are the words that the person remembers. What does it mean? It must mean that they, they highlighted something that made those words possible because it was so representative and the, those words must have gripped the nature of their experiences so well that it's not just about, about suppressing other words that they could have also said. That's about something that they were able to um, accomplish because they didn't say more than five words. And that's where healing comes in uh, to play. To be able to speak only a few words, but able to communicate. How special is that? I started to sort of really see that, that wonderful effect, the striking effect that those words were able to have. That's actually going against, in my, I mean, I'm not the first person to talk about this or write about this, but I think it's essentially going against the cultural essentialism that's oftentimes associated with Asians and Asian Americans. They are quiet, they are subservient, they don't express themselves too much. It's sort of emotionally unscrutable and so forth. I want to say, well, that's Western-centric ways of thinking about so-called Asian characteristics. Actually, Asians are quiet, but they, they are actually doing something that's very active. That's not quiet at all. That's not silent at all. So I really wanted to highlight that in part because of that. But I, I, I think that's what they were survivors are telling me. Um, so that's that's where this hiding and healing came from. Yeah, and I should I should also bring up and again. I I keep thinking about stuff in my own research uh, and about uh, the people who did talk, at least in Japanese uh, case in Hiroshima Nagasaki they were the heroes, the victim heroes, to use James Orfrey's of the survivor movement, and there was this sort of pressure on people to come and talk and bear witness and the people who didn't talk were looked down on so there's this this counter memory of the bomb we usually think about counter memory something is counter official narrative but there's so many counters here it counters the survivor movement the expectation of society uh, from survivors uh, it counters the japanese american community this going back to the quote we started with like the their memory is peripheral to all sorts of centers, right? It's kind of like almost a Russian dose of, of contradictions here, which uh, which we kind of unpack throughout the book. And, uh, and 
specifically yeah. like the experiences vis-a-vis the camps right like the, the experience of the camps like who's there's like um, i don't know if we said in the book or it's one of our conversations more what who suffered more i think that who was... suffered more is like constantly each other like uh i forgot the phrase you used uh maybe it's in a book or about oh like mutual silencing maybe that's mm-hmm. what you're saying that none no one wants to talk so they would prefer just to to be quiet about this mm-hmm. um this is but some did talk right and in a very particular way and there's one thing that uh kind of stood up for me the people who uh who is it the jack um I forgot his name the guy the person who was used by civil defense in california who, oh jack jack yeah. Derrick. yeah he's he has a very interesting story do you want to talk a little bit more about because he also used art it's something also quite interesting but not white words right yeah yeah so i mean he's one of the, the us born survivors that i had a privilege of talking his name is jack moto dairiki and I think he's born in he was born in Sacramento and uh, came to the U uh, Japan in uh, August of 1941, just a few months before the Pearl Harbor, and then, then were in Japan through the war. And I'm blanking on in what year he came back, but he came back to San Francisco and attended a city college there. And he eventually uh, trained himself to be an architect. Um, uh, so I was able to see him at his San Francisco home. And uh, so Jack uh, spoke about uh, the, his experience of being a survivor uh, when there was a radio show uh, was uh, organized by the California Civil Defense. I think it was maybe 1950 exactly in that year. But, um, you know, his stories of survival was very conveniently used as a, a ideological tool uh, of telling supposedly American listeners how to you know prepare yourself in case of emergency. Um, so it, it's a, the world of duck and cover, right? So um, I'm referring to this uh, you know documentary um, uh, or educational materials that are disseminated by the, the civil defense agencies by the US government uh, throughout uh, the early era of the Cold War that uh, indicate that if you duck and cover, you are able to survive the the atomic destructions. And, um, you know, so Jack Derrick's story was used as as one of those stories, uh, messaging, if you will, that the American government was eagerly putting out. And and yet being taken advantage uh, of his experiences in those uh, ideological ways, uh, Jack Moto directly um, at one point uh, stopped talking. He uh, actually even drew, uh, you know, um, the the, uh, the the drawing of a mushroom cloud, uh, which is striking, and I, I feature the uh, the drawing in my, in my book, book. Yeah, yeah, but um, that artistic expression was also no more because um, he didn't really explain why, but I think he probably felt that. He had enough of that sort of use of his, yeah, uh, experience. To what, to what extent? Because there's also interesting conversation about people who serve in Korea, right? Japanese uh, survivors that go from Japan to America and come back to Asia as soldiers in Korea War. To what extent do you think um, survivors internalized the uh, American story of the bomb? Um, yeah. Uh, either either Jack Derricky is like the 
being a, a rescuer rather than a victim in Hiroshima or the soldiers in Korea. There is, I come from uh, Holocaust studies and there's this idea of the gray zone. Right? I don't know if you're familiar with, but this idea that like, in one way, the perpetrator make the victims part of the, part of the crime. Mm-hmm. In a way, so because they're Japanese Americans, that's that's something that I kind of wondered about. I mean, they are, they they are part of the bigger American story. What, what way this? I mean, it might not be as extreme as in the Holocaust case, but maybe you wanna. I don't know if you can uh, expand a little bit about this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know it's important to remember this is uh, the era of the Cold War where America fought many hot wars in Asia, including the Korean War and, and Vietnam War as well. Um, so that means that many Japanese American survivors and Korean American survivors are recruited and actively so for the same reasons that I mentioned earlier in the context of the Allied Forces occupation of Japan between 1945 and 52. And then that means that translators are in great demand. People who have a bicultural skills are in great demand. So they were oftentimes recruited for that purpose. And the irony is that that's where the uh, sort of model minority myth comes into play in that that kind of recruitment was based largely on the assumption of cultural fluency rather than the actual skills, language or cultural or otherwise. So many survivors actually recruited with a promise of being able to serve as a translator, meaning that they'll be stationed in Japan, not in the war front of Korea but they end up with being sent to Korea anyway because they actually didn't have that cultural skill or language yeah. skill, which is very true. I mean, if you live in, in America up to three years, first three years of your life and being in Japan in the, through the war year and you didn't come back until you are 16 or 17, um, and then you are sort of recruited to the U.S. Army at the age of 21, you can imagine how this person may not be really fluent in English, right? Um, or Japanese, or maybe both. Um, so it's a sort of ableist assumption that sort of fed into the, uh, the American military's eagerness uh, in recruiting uh, Asian or Korean American uh, uh, subject, uh, including survivors. Um, but I guess, <laughs> I guess that's, um, that's uh, part of the story of how they were part of the American team, right? So um, they fought the American war as part of the US Army. And let's not forget that, you know, this is really the first full war that US fought that had an integrated army. Um, So that means that white soldiers and Asian American soldiers and others uh, served the war side by side as again, part of the team. And the military does, uh, you know, unique things to people's sense of belonging. Um, I think it's just a description, accurate description vis-a-vis many veterans anyway, if not all. Yeah. So um, that means that um, you you build allyship uh, with, with the sort of larger cause that they fought together, regardless of your ethnic or racial or national backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so that's a sort of, yeah, in many ways, uh, in the indoctrination of uh, U.S. Uh, Cold War strategy, which was very intentionally, you know, as you know, as a historian, done by the U.S. government. You know, Cold War really made it absolutely necessary for the U.S. to create stronger allies in Asia because China is looming and 
India is also looming as a potential, yeah. you know, domino that may turn to the communist side. So yeah, I, I think those are uh, those mechanism uh, probably. I, I think in in the, in my book, uh, this is not a general description of any survivors, but um, some survivors who served the U.S. Army during the Cold War time, um, you know, had the sort of edges of their memories about the bomb sounded off. And then they were very reluctant to talk about lack of recognition by the US government or a lack of treatment that are made available to them as US survivors, again, yeah. because of lack of recognition by the US government. They are very reluctant to talk about that. They were very um, um, not forthcoming in, in yeah. their uh, claims. But then as the 50s turn to the 60s and we move here to chapter five here and the creation of uh, Cubs, that's how you say it? The, yeah. the Coalition for Atomic Bomb uh, Survivors. Yeah. And you see, you see a move, a move, almost almost classic move from like silence to, to speaking up. Um, because this is the same kind of thing you see with uh, in, in other other histories uh, with Holocaust survivors and others that in the 60s for various, very different reasons, people start... Um, Speaking up, but in particular, this particular uh, instance has got a lot to do with the Vietnam War and the politics of the '60s. And like, can you please talk a little bit more about the formation? Cops is formed. It's a lot. It's not a lot, but it's later, right? It's the '70s. But there's a change in the '60s in Asian American, in Japanese American community, and in the American survivors community. Can you can you talk about this change? Absolutely. Yeah, so CAP stands for a Committee of Atomic Bomb Survivors in the United States of America. So it's interesting that they're claiming, I don't think necessarily American-ness, but definitely their location in a geographical sense that they are in America. So uh, they wanted to distinguish themselves from survivors in Japan or Korea because that's that's very important part of their history and identity. So I think it's important that they started to come together in the mid 1960s. I think it was 1965 when they started to have really small gathering among themselves. Um, and then they, they exchanged their stories over a cup of sake and uh, in the, you know, the, the back part of the Japan bank building in, in Japan town and so forth in, in San Francisco. And uh, I think the same thing was taking place simultaneously in, in Los Angeles as well. And uh, it started to sort of expand uh, through the rest of the decade. But as you point out, this is uh, by the end of that decade, 1960s, Asian American civil rights movement was on the rise. Um, so younger generation of Americans, uh, Asian Americans, um, and I will start to use uh, Asian Pacific Island, Desi Americans here, um, and I, I will just uh, use that as a short uh, PETA uh, Americans uh, because it's important that we have diversification of Asian American population from, especially from this time period on. But those APIDA or Asian Americans, uh, especially younger generation of people are noticing the injustice uh, that their parents or uh, grandparents generations suffered. Uh, through the World War II, but also in the earlier period of, you know, um, Asian exclusion and the land restrictions and, um, you know, discrimination in education and uh, housing uh, and jobs and so forth. So they were essentially um, 
you know, working with other people of color, minority communities to do things like, well, we need more programs in universities and colleges that could teach, you know, history of our people, not just uh, the American history that's mostly uh, constituted by the, the mainstream society. And, and also uh, doing things like we need a community healthcare clinics that are affordable and accessible. I mean, the Japanese American communities or Apira communities during this time period often lacked basic care. They couldn't get pap smear examinations. They couldn't get flu shot. Um, lead poisoning was rampant, right? <clears throat> um, so they, they really needed to um, uh, have those um, uh, lack of access for basic needs and then cares are uh, uh, remedied. So young people were coming together as organizers and activists and community members. And then they started to notice, you know what, not only the, the camp survivors, but they are also bomb survivors. What do we do with them? And they wanted to sort of ask questions to those survivors and survivors responded by telling their stories, sharing their stories, maybe a little bit outside of this small group of five or six people gathering over a cup of sake. Why don't you sort of talk to younger people and talk about uh, their experiences in community gatherings instead of, <clears throat> you know, just, you know, a few other people who are also survivors. Um, so in that way, it started to expand a little bit uh, within the community and then eventually beyond. Um, let me just quickly grab a glass of water. I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit. Right, so um, so in chapter five and six, the last chapter of the book, you talk a lot about radiation illness and the impact of radiation illness on both Ibaksha struggle, Ibaksha, the survivor struggles, uh, but on their memory, but also how it led to alliance with different groups beyond. I mean, so you mentioned Asian American, Japanese American, but it's well, the alliances that Cubs uh, had went way beyond that. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about both the impact radiation and also how it led to those cross-party or cross-group alliances? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. I, I think that um, I, I wanna say that, that the radiation illness is a new disability of the new age. It's a, a nuclear era produced new form of disability. And I, I say that uh, not necessarily to say that radiation illness is therefore more serious and more devastating than other forms of injuries and illness that are also caused by the war. I don't mean to sort of create a hierarchy of the seriousness and gra gravity of any conditions caused by the war, but rather I am thinking about the sort of psychosocial effect that it had on survivors who were exposed to radiation, that made their experiences uh, rather unique. Um, so, I mean, first of all, radiation is not known. It's not tangible. I think a uh, historian that I admire, um, you know, Andy Roder in his work, Hiroshima, the World Bomb, um, talked, his first chapter really is eloquent about how um, invisible and therefore mysterious and fearful radiation effect is. So he, uh, I really appreciate that, um, you know, his discussion of how radiation is something that you have to take that kills you because you want to live. So it affects and it contaminates things that you need to eat or you need to intake 
as you try to live, which is like air, water, soil, food, medicines, right? All those things uh, that you need to rely on to sustain your life. And that is supposed to be the cause of your death, uh, if not death, uh, maybe premature death or illness. So that sort of tension between the life sustenance, uh, um, su sustaining materials being contaminated, insinuated by radiation is something that I think was uh, more keenly recognized, <clears throat> if not entirely newly occurring uh, phenomena that's associated with the experience of the radiation illness among survivors. And I, I wanna say that, you know, we of course, need to and do talk about physical effects such as cancer, for instance, thyroid cancer or uh, leukemia and other forms of cancer. We, we have a plenty of reasons why we want to talk about physical effects of radiation because they are there and we should continue to, to look into it <laughs> as we, we have been, uh, maybe more. But what it is uh, also striking uh, what what you know makes radiation illness also striking is a psychosocial aspect of suffering or even getting ill. You always have this fear of becoming ill, Ill eventually, and uh, leading to a premature death. Um, it's filled with fear, anger, the sense of being manipulated, and uncertainty. Um, radiation effect is not clearly defined even now, right? So we talk about thresholds or not. We talk about the sort of safe or unsafe dosages. Um, I think it still varies uh, from a society to another. Um, so there is no clear agreement that guarantees that you are, you are safe. And it's not that um, we are in any way guarantees uh, guaranteed to be safe or healthy in other conditions. Of course, we are all potentially, you know, able to be, become ill one way or another. And yet I think that the, the radiation illness may brought a keen awareness of that uncertainty among survivors. That's something that was uh, a source for survivors to come together, as you mentioned earlier, um, because it didn't really matter what national or cultural background or layer senses of belonging that you might have. If you're a survivor, you have this sense of uncertainty that you are constantly um, dealing with as an experience uh, that you have as survivors every day. Um, so I, I think in that way, it helped the uh, Japanese survivors and their supporters in Japan to start to pay attention to Korean survivors, not only those who stayed in Japan as Zainichi Koreans, but also Korean survivors who were in Korea, those pe pe people who returned to the Korean Peninsula after the liberation in 1945. Um, there was a social activism that occurred uh, because of the sense of commonality through radiation illness, uh, the fear of it. And I think the same dynamism occurred uh, between Korean and Japanese survivors vis-a-vis -vis American survivors. So American survivors, um, uh, more to put it more, um, Plainly, the Japanese supporters of non-Japanese survivors were able to see American survivors uh, because of the commonality of radiation illness uh, that carried a unique significance in people's perception. So um, 
uh, the, the strengths and histories of those alliance buildings differ from time to time and from location to location. Uh, I could elaborate more on that, but I, I think it's it's probably good for me to say that yes, this is some commonality um, that was a new phenomena in the nuclear age that yes became the basis for alliance building, if not the perfect alliances. Yeah, and you talk about how they reach out to downwinders, people from Nevada and other places. And there's so much more to talk about. And I, the book is so rich and so layered. And, but I want to end, uh, but before I want to end the interview, before we do, I just want to talk to you about what you're doing now. Uh, what, if you can tell us uh, what's your current project? Uh, where can we have you back here? Yeah, well, thank you. It's always exciting and a bit scary at the same time to talk about your next project or your current project. Uh, but I'm going to take a courage and then go ahead and say a few words. Um, so I'm currently working on the history of disability among Apida, uh, uh, Asian American population uh, through the 20th century and um, 20th century with a focus on its archives. So, and I can already tell you upfront that the archive hardly exists. <laughs> so <Again? laughs> I need to be drawn to the subject that doesn't seem to have established archives, which is fine. But I want to talk about why the archives of disability among Asians uh, in America is severely lacking. And if we were to find archives, how do we go about finding them or even defining them? What counts as archives? I'm thinking about issues like uh, in a, in a uh, diasporic population where there's hardly no, little to no archival materials preserved in the National Archive, unless you are interested in writing a history that's purely based on the, you know, the, the primary sources created by the national governments only, right? Um, so I'm thinking about Vietnamese refugees, for instance. Uh, we really don't have uh, archives for their disability experiences. Uh, and the only sources that are available will be documents created by the US government, right? Um, uh, or Vietnamese government, but you know, that's, that's really, I'm really trying to look at their lives after they came to the US. So um, in, in that scenario, um, how can we uh, sort of uh, benefit from um, something like Saidia Hartman mentioned in, in her influential work about uh, the archives or lack thereof uh, around the history of Atlantic slavery uh, when talked about the uh, sort of uh, creative and critical fabrication of historical evidences. Um, would it be applicable if we are confronted, as I have been, by the lack of archives in the diasporic population as well? And if it's applicable, but with some tweaks and revisions, what are those tweaks and revisions that we need to be making? I'm thinking about issues like, um, you know, would we be able to count um, autobiographical or semi-autobiographical fictional writings as part of historical archives? And how do you theorize, theorize that if you are? So I just, uh, just um, um, some of the things that are ongoing uh, for me, and then I think it's, Surprise, surprise, it's somewhat related to the book <laughs> that I just published, um, you know, not just in terms of archives, but I think I'm, I'm drawn to people whose voices are not particularly audible. I think I'm interested in people who are not considered to be 
normal or healthy or um, all of those good things. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm curious. Um, and then I think the thinking about archives would, would be the driving force of this project, uh, which I hope to contribute to um, you know, Asian American history um, and American history in general, which I think is an uh, important component of historical understanding, especially American historical understanding. So that's that's exciting for me to think about those possibilities. Thank you. It sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to hear more about it. So, uh, Professor Wake, Wake, thank you very much for uh, being with us on your Books Network. Um, have a great afternoon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, uh, it was a pleasure to talk with you.